Well, it is, it is good to be back with you this morning. Um, I don't know if anybody noticed, by the way, don't, uh, don't share this or whatever, but anybody notice that uh, Robbie preaches on Daylight Savings Time every week? <laughs> don't say anything to him about that. That would be great. Um, we'll see what happens next year. Uh, would, you, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you, God, for the rhythm of gathering together to worship you. Because we know that left to our own devices, our own desires, we wouldn't, we wouldn't carve out this time. So you are so good to give us these practices and rhythms as a means of grace, as a way of, of coming together and declaring your goodness, rejoicing in your goodness, and doing that together as a family, loving one another. Help us to continue that this morning during this time in the Word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can, uh, if you want to, you can open your Bibles up to Matthew 6. I am going to bounce around a little bit, but that would probably be a good passage to, to have um, there with you that. We're going to be a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. This, this pandemic that we've been going through that we feels like, I don't know about you, but I feel like the light is there at the end of the tunnel. And every time I feel like that light is getting a little brighter, I read some article or see something else that makes that light feel a little more distant and a little dimmer. And then it like gets a little brighter again. And um, there's some things of, of normalcy, some senses of normalcy and other things that you wonder, is it ever going to get back to normal? And when, when this all started, one of the things that we talked about was that we didn't want to waste this time. That God had us here for a reason and was going to call things out. And, and I really believe that God would use this time to kind of draw our attention to, to problems and issues in, in our church and in our culture. And, and that he would use that to shine light on the dark parts of, of our hearts and, and the world that we live in. And so I just want to, um, I just want to say that I think that he has done that in, in incredible ways. And one of the things that has been brought out is a different kind of pandemic. And so there is a pandemic that has happened, and then that pandemic has, has shown a light on a different pandemic. And that is a pandemic of, of mental health. What we realized during this time for so many of us that when given the space and when cut off from our day-to-day distractions and, and busyness and, and all the things that are going on in the world around us, when, when some of the things that we had placed our hope in were, were, were shaken a little bit, it is a massive struggle for so many of us. Add to that that the, the services that are available are so limited already, but then during a pandemic, even more so. And we have another full-blown pandemic. The American Psychological Association said we are facing a national mental health crisis that could yield serious health and social consequences for years to come. Now, this wasn't created by this pandemic. It was just laid bare. It's nothing new. We knew that for so many of us in our culture, we were running on fumes already. Many of us were hanging on by a thread already. People in, in our culture are in financial ruin, overrun by debt, overrun by stress, maxed out, anxious, 
depressed. We have uh, huge numbers of anxiety and depression among teenagers and young adults and of the elderly. And it seems that the only people who thought that they were kind of immune to all of this were the people that were so busy in the middle of their life, so distracted by work and family and all the different things that were going on, that they just didn't notice it was happening to them. This is not the abundant life that Christ has offered us. Think about your typical pace of life. And then think about the pace of life of Jesus through the Gospels. I would just ask, does does your pace of life and and the kind of the road that you walk in a typical week, does it look more like Jesus or more like the world? I mean, I, I feel it. I think we all feel it. As a culture, and it's no different in the church, we are overloaded. I mentioned this before, but back in the 1800s, their uh, cargo ships would be sent across the Atlantic, and um, they would be overloaded. They would be loaded to the brim. And when they were sitting in port, they were fine. They would just load, they would load up cargo, and then, but the problem was, they didn't seem like they were overloaded while they were in port. Like in those calm waters, they would just sit there, and they were fine, they were, the ships were still floating, everything was fine. They would send them out, but then as soon as any kind of waves or storm would hit those ships, they would be doomed. They would capsize, they would crack, they would break, they would, they would drown. They would sink. And so a line was created. There was a, there was a um, politician, a British politician by the name of Plimsoll, who um, fought for this and said, this is terrible, like we're losing these crews and, and all, these cargo, all this cargo, and the businesses weren't motivated because their insurance would cover it. And they actually, it didn't really matter to them if the ship made it or not. And so Plimsoll steps in and says, you know, we need to do something about this. And the Plimsoll line was created. And you'll see it on cargo ships, just a line on the, the side of the boat and that line, and it has different lines based on whether you're in tropical seas, freshwater, saltwater, all these different things. But those lines tell you that if, um, if the ship is sitting in port, it can't sink below that line. That line should not be covered up. They say if, if it does, then it's overloaded. And it's created to create margins for, it's there to create margins for the ship. So that if the ship goes out to sea, when it gets hit by storms or anything that would happen, that it could actually withstand it. The reality is that when you and I are overloaded, everything seems fine as long as nothing goes wrong. As long as we're in port and the waters are clear and calm, then we feel like we can handle it. Maybe your finances are are such that as long as nothing goes wrong, you're okay. As long as, as the overtime is there and available, as long as the car doesn't break down, as long as no one gets sick, you're okay. Or your calendar is, is such that, that as long as, as there's no traffic, as long as you time things just right, and as long as that meeting doesn't um, go over and this practice doesn't go long or whatever, then, then and as long as the drive through line isn't too long, then, then we're going to be fine. 
And what that does to us is it creates kind of this tension and this anxiety and we function with a, a scarcity mentality. We function like we're, we're always short on time and on money. And interestingly, when we feel like we're in that scarcity mentality and we feel like we never have enough time or money, our response is to kind of go into survival mode and we just turn more inwardly focused on it. And we start to hoard time and money because we feel like it's so short. No wonder when we read in the book of Acts and we see the radical way in which they lived, the radical generosity that they had, it feels so foreign to us. It feels so unattainable. Like how could we possibly, when we're, when we're so busy, then, then being asked to volunteer, we just can't imagine how to find time for that. Or we're, we're so stressed financially, we, just, we, can't, we can't even imagine giving, let alone radically giving, in the way that they did. We are overloaded. We need margins. And that's where the practice of simplicity comes in. Now, the world also sees this and, and has versions of this, but don't be fooled. They are counterfeit versions. One of those versions of simplicity is the minimalism movement. Who's, who's familiar with the minimalism movement? I know who where my, where my people are. Okay. I love the minimalism movement. Like, I'm addicted to things with that. I, like, I love when people tell me that I could backpack, I could travel to Europe for two months with a tiny little like a fanny pack with a pair, one pair of underwear that folds up to like this, all right, that you wash constantly, throughout, and, then, and, and one little pair of socks and just one thing, like a, two, they have toothbrushes that fold because, and I quote, we all know toothbrushes are just so big and bulky. And I was like, I didn't know they were so big and bulky. They kind of are. I do need one that folds. And so they say, like, get rid of all these things. You're a slave to all your things. You maintain all these things. You, you buy all these things, and you have to maintain all of them. And so the answer is just get rid of all of them. And then what? Well, you do all that so you can chase experiences. Because life isn't about the stuff that you, that you gather and that you collect. It's about experiences. And so you can go travel the world and climb every mountain and swim every sea and whatever the rest of those lyrics are. And you can, you can be that person that can, that can have all of those experiences and that Instagram account and, and the, or, or maintaining the YouTube channel or sharing it with everybody. They say that is what life is made up of. That is the new version of the American dream. A generation that has traded a, a big house in the sur- suburbs and all the toys for visiting every corner of the earth and accruing all the experiences. But like fighting fire with fire, it is just the problem repackaged. It's just unloading one set of cargo to lighten the load on the ship and adding another set of cargo right on back on. Because what they will find is that those experiences will not fulfill them any more than the house in the suburbs or the house on the acres of woods. The reason that doesn't work is because they've identified the wrong cause. See, minimalism says that the problem is stuff. That's the problem. Get rid of your stuff and you'll find freedom. But there's so many other versions of that. There are people who say, no, 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 the problem is debt. 
right? So take these classes, get rid of your debt, get your debt under control, find financial freedom, and then you'll have true freedom. And other people say, no, 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 the problem is responsibility. You just have too much commitment. Like, just get rid of all that. All of a sudden, when you can untie yourself from all these responsibilities, then you'll find freedom. Other people say, no, 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 the problem is is other people. And so get rid of all the people who trigger you or frustrate you or make you angry at all and, and get rid of all of them, and then you'll find peace and freedom. The Bible has a different diagnosis and thus a different cure. See, the gospel says that we weren't created for life at this pace. We weren't created for a life that was hurried and and hectic. You think about the creation in the garden, the creation of man. We were given meaningful work of caring for God's creation and enjoying its fruits. We were made to go on evening strolls with God through the woods. But Adam and Eve thought there was something better. Some greater pursuit that they were missing out on. The enemy wooed them with the idea that God was holding out on them, holding back. That yes, there there were a lot of good things here in the garden, but there were even better things to be tasted outside of God's plan. And it's the same today. See, the problem isn't stuff or debt or lack of purpose or overcommitment. The problem is the heart that desires those things and wants to make a savior out of experiences and stuff and money and people. Trying to get free from one idol by looking for help to another idol never works. See, the problem is that we find that we actually, we want that hectic life. We want that busyness. We, every time we feed into that, we want more. We are, we are wealthier than any other society in the history of mankind, and yet we have more crippling debt than ever before. That's because the more we have, the more we spend. Acquiring more things that takes more money to maintain. We're, we're more connected than any other society in the history of mankind. I can get a message across the world in a split second. And yet we are more alone than ever before because we have settled for hundreds of surface digital connections rather than a few deep, real connections. I mean, think about technology that has promised us the ability to, to handle tasks more quickly. And yet all we have done is it has become our master as it, though promised to give us more time, sucked every, sucks every ounce of time that we have in a given day. It turns out that, that we don't want the space created by those things. We want those things. We think that those things will deliver us. We want to be busy and hectic and rushed and hurried. We not only do those things, we we applaud others who do it. That's why whenever I ask and whenever we ask each other, how are you doing? 
good but busy? Try answering that question without busy. You'll have to like wrap duct tape around your mouth and like hold yourself back. Because our value is attached to it. Our identity is attached to it. If I'm not busy, then what am I? If I'm not hurried and rushed, what value do I have? We find our worth in the number of activities we do, the projects we accomplish, what others see us doing. We are addicted to a pace of life that is not of Christ. And so the solution to our brokenness and our rebellion is redemption through Jesus. We don't need a fix for the symptoms. We need to fix the root. We need our desires to be redeemed. We need to answer questions about where is my identity? Where is my worth? Where is my value? Where is my security? Where do I find meaning? Is it in the world or is it in Jesus? And as it turns out, they are mutually exclusive. You cannot find your identity in both Jesus and your busyness. You cannot find your security in both Jesus and your bank account. Jesus says in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He goes on. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. By the way, doesn't that sound like a pipe dream? Like completely unrealistic? He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious? About clothing, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, that fixes it, right? By the way, this is why we always say it's not about knowledge. What we do with that knowledge and obeying Jesus, we're talking about training to abide in Jesus. We have to train to abide in that. Because if it was just about knowledge, we would read a passage like that and say, oh, God's going to take care of me? Okay, well then I won't worry anymore. But I would venture to guess that even people who aren't familiar with church have heard some version of this passage. And what Jesus is saying is if, if you serve money and the things of this world, you will have anxiety and stress and loneliness and emptiness and hopelessness. But if you serve God, you will be free from those things. If you seek the kingdom first, everything else will be added. Now that's a pretty big promise. 
We have run ourselves ragged trying to find security and freedom in our bank accounts, caused ourselves endless stress finding our worth in what others think of us, and run ourselves even more ragged trying to find meaning and purpose with full calendars. And the result is an epidemic of depression and anxiety and loneliness that the world has never seen to this extent. But the call of Jesus is a childlike return by faith to the garden. Trusting that every good gift comes from our Father's hands. Trusting that apart from Him, we can do no work that will last. We can have no experience that will give lasting fulfillment. We can have no life of lasting meaning. And the way of that is Jesus. Abiding in Christ. A life of meaning and peace and generosity and joy and purpose all found in abiding in Christ. And so we practice that. How? How do we walk in the newness as Christ has redeemed with these redeemed desires? How do we do that? And one way is that we practice simplicity. And for many of us, our lives are anything but simple. And so we need to simplify we need to practice simplicity. You might say, wait, well, didn't, didn't you just say the answer wasn't to give away our stuff and to, to, to clear out our calendar? Like, didn't you just say, like, that's just a, a counterfeit version of this? I'm not saying that simplicity is the answer. I'm saying Jesus is the answer. Simplicity is a way of practicing abiding in Jesus. Just like last week when Robbie said silence isn't the answer, but it is a way to practice abiding in Jesus, who is the answer. So if we look at Christ and we look at how he lived in, in his life, which was, I think we would say, um, there was a simplicity to his life. He practiced this. No one, by the way, had more value or a more important mission than Jesus. So when we find our value in busyness, we need to look at Jesus and say, okay, did anybody in the history of the world have a more important mission before him than Jesus? If your answer is no, then it would be good to look at his life and see that he actually had margins. He had margins on, when he was on his way to heal the ruler's daughter. And he meets a woman that others would see as insignificant. That The disciples said, we don't have time. And in Mark 5, the disciples say, we're in a hurry. We don't have time for this. But Jesus wasn't in a hurry. And he heals her. In Mark 10, people were bringing little children to Jesus and the disciples felt like they didn't have time for that. They had more important things to be doing, but Jesus had time. Jesus was always purposeful, but never in a hurry. How? Well, one of the keys to that, one of the helps as we practice this is, is prioritization. Dallas Willard says this, Simplicity is the arrangement of life around a few consistent purposes, explicitly excluding what is not necessary to human well-being. It's an arranging around my life. Like, what are, what are the priorities and purposes? Why do I exist? Answering that question, why does God have me here? And they're not always huge, big things or things that we think would be big things, but they are because in the kingdom, small things become big things. 
And so why does God have me here? And then arranging my life around that. So what Jesus did in, in Luke 4, after healing many people, it says, When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Imagine like these people crowding around Jesus after he's already healed a bunch of people and saying, look, Jesus, there's so much to be done here. There's so much work to be done, so much good work to be done. There's so many more people that need to be healed. But Jesus knew what his priorities were. And he said, we must go to the next town to preach the good news for this is why I came. Why are you here? There's no shortage of good things that we can be involved in. And we can be tempted to kind of say, okay, well, I got to be in all the activities and do all the things. But we don't realize that by doing all that, we end up missing the main things that God has given us. And those things will change for us for season to season. Like there's a, primary, there's a primary thing that we're all called to do. Love God, love others, make disciples. But how that plays out changes from different season to season. And when you have young children at home, there is no greater priority in the gospel than to disciple your children in the gospel. And then when they grow up, then you switch from discipling them to just worrying about them constantly. Or so I hear. But we need to understand when you're prioritizing that saying yes to something is saying no to something else. And part of this is just acknowledging that and rearranging your life around the things that you would say, no, this is what God has given me. Not around what you and I want to do the most. Like that's a different, again, a secular version of that. But to say, God, I'm yours. What have you called me to? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rearrange my life around that. By the way, it's one of the reasons why we keep a very simple ministry model here in the church family. There's no shortage of good ideas and things that, that people bring to us and say, well, what about this or what about this? Or, isn't, isn't this important? And we can look at all that and say, yes, those things are important. But for us, we want to be simple and say, this is what God has called us to as a church family. We know that members of the church family will go off in different directions and God has called you to do different things. But corporately, as a united church family, we try to keep that simple in part so that you can pursue those things. There are so many studies out there, by the way, that, that show that church plants are exponentially better at reaching people, reaching the lost and making disciples than mature churches are. And they're always wondering why. Like, why is it that these church plants raise up and all of a sudden they're seeing all these people come to Christ and then as they age, the people that come to Christ and who are discipled, that starts to, to shrink as the church gets older. You would think that as they became more established that they would be more effective, but it turns out that's not the case. I think the answer is simply that because the church becomes more complicated. Like in the early years, I know this as a church planter, in the early years, you have nothing to do except share the gospel and try to disciple people who just came to Christ. There's no money or volunteer staffs to do anything else. There's nothing else to do. 
But as the church grows, the pressure to add complexity mounts. And pretty soon, in being kind of wooed by good things, we miss the main things and don't have time for the main things. So that's why we say we're we're God's family on mission. We want to keep that as simple as possible. We want to solidify you in the gospel by sharing it and helping you grow in gospel fluency. We want to love one another well as our Father has loved us. And we want to make disciples who make disciples. And what we find is when you keep things simple, whether it's in the church or in our life, you find some freedom. Richard Foster said simply, simplicity is freedom. The question is just freedom for what? Is it freedom so that we can indulge in other pursuits? that will just load more on the ship? Or is it freedom so that we can have an opportunity for laziness or to avoid responsibility or commitment to sit on the couch? The reason for living simply is not just so you can have a stress-free life. Paul says to the Galatians, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You know what ships have like the lightest load? Coast Guard. Because the Coast Guard knows like they go out to sea looking to help people. Looking to love their neighbor. That's their purpose. And so they want to be as lightweight as they possibly can be. So they are mobile. So they are fast to be able to get to the scene. So that they can take on extra cargo and extra people anytime that they need to. They use their freedom and lightweight life of simplicity to serve and love their neighbor. And that's the goal for us. Simplifying our life to be available for the Spirit's leading to love our neighbor. Last week, Robbie mentioned how creating space, silence is a way of creating space to hear from God. To say, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. And I would say that living a life of simplicity creates an environment to respond to what you hear. It's creating space and margins to say, God, okay, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm ready. I'm available. I can respond quickly. Think about it. If you, if you live simply regarding finances, then you have margins to, to meet those who are in need quickly when those needs arise. If you live simply regarding time, then you have margins to be there for your neighbor or to take that extra minute with the server at the restaurant or the, the cashier at the grocery store. When Lauren and I, before we came here, we, we sold our house you know, and, and, and got an RV and just traveled the country. We, we unplugged completely and radically from the life that we had been living. And a couple of things happened in that time. Our life became much more simple. And a couple of things that happened. One is we, we realized we didn't need nearly as much space and stuff as we thought that we did. We moved into under 300 square feet of space with our three children, who thankfully are super calm and have like no energy. And it was difficult to pare down. 
It was really hard for us at the beginning to say, like, what are we going to put? Like, what do we leave behind? What do we put in here? But you know what's funny is after a while, we couldn't even remember what we left behind. We created space and were able to minister to people in a way that we'd not done in a long time. We'd been so driven for so long to try to build the church and get people to come to the church. And our church had grown, and so it started to get more complex. And we'd forgotten kind of that first calling of the simplicity of just being available to love the people that God brought in front of us. And not just a couple of days um, after leaving our house and staying at our first state park, we had a knock on our door, and it was a upper teenage girl who asked if we had a phone charger. And we were like, well, that's strange. Like, uh, we actually didn't have a charging cable that, um, uh, that, that she needed because Apple's the worst. But we, didn't, we couldn't help her. And so she, so, so she went away and we kind of watched and saw her go over to this tent. And there was, she had some friends, it looked like, and they were all staying in this tent. And all of a sudden, I think Lauren was the first to realize. She said, I don't think they're camping I think they're living there. And we realized that this was a group of of homeless young adults and teenagers who were just kind of moving around from state park to state park in a tent. And so, because we had nowhere to go and nothing to do, Lauren cleared out our refrigerator and stuff and just compiled a bunch of food to, to take over to them. God used that time of simplicity to heal our hearts, to practice hospitality in 300 square feet, to use our time to just say, God, what do you want? I'm here. I'm available. So what could that look like? And one area I I would suggest that you start is to, to write down your priorities and compare those to Scripture and say, does this make sense? Is this what God has called me to do? And, and don't get tripped up when you say, well, look, Jay, that's the problem is I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Start with what you do know. If you're married, the Bible tells you a lot about how you are to love your spouse. If you have kids, the Bible tells you a lot about how you're to love your kids. If you are ever around people, the Bible tells you a lot about how you are to love people. If you have coworkers, if you have neighbors, if you have friends, the Bible calls us to love God and love others and make disciples. So write those priorities down and what that looks like. And then start to rearrange your life, your calendar, your bank account, everything around those priorities and say, this is the thing. You start to simplify and look around and say, say, okay, then I need to get rid of some of this other stuff with this bent. And so you could, you could start maybe by simplifying stuff, like clear out your wardrobe, clear out your garage, clear out your kids' toys. Definitely do that. They're all back in children's ministry. They're not listening. And one way that you can do that, that we've tested this out a little bit, like because I know it can be scary, one way to do that is, is just box those things up and put them up like on a shelf somewhere and go a month without them. And then at the end of that month, Say, okay, without looking in that box, I'm going to name everything that I missed in this last month. And keep those things and give the rest away. You could simplify money. Every time that you are going to buy something that you don't need this week, a cup of coffee, fast food meal, whatever, anytime you're going to spend that money, just take that money, be $5, and go bless somebody with it. 
Just give it away. As quickly as possible. Like, don't think twice about it. Unless you think that God's going to be sitting there and being like, no, that is not where I wanted you to give that money. A curse be on your heads and the heads of your children. He's not going to do that. He's going to bless that. Or maybe with your calendar, a way to simplify a calendar. Just keep track of your time. Take a week and just make a log. There's tons of apps on, on phones to log your time. You can also write it down on, oh, I think they call it paper. It's like a pen. Okay? And, and just keep track of your time. No guilt, no judgment, no, like, no shame. Like, that's not the point of the exercise. Just write down everything that you do with your time. And then at the end of the week, go back and compare it to your priorities and highlight all the things you did that are in line with your priorities in one color and highlight the things that are not in a different color and just look at it. Or maybe you need to do something bigger. And that's where sacrifice comes in. And originally, we're going to have a whole other message on sacrifice. I'm not, but I do want to say this. If, if simplicity is, is the paring down of things in our life to create space, then sacrifice is giving what you need to radically depend on God. So in, in Luke 21, Jesus gives this picture. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. You know what I find interesting about this? We have no follow-up verse of Jesus grabbing it out of the offering box and running back up to him and be like, no, 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 I totally appreciate your heart, but you need this. Why? Because he knew better than we do that his father would take care of her. You saw this play out in the early church. So they sold all of their possessions all of their possessions, they sold everything and had everything in common so that they could give it to anyone who had need. The practice of sacrifice is like jumping into the cold pool rather than just dipping your toe in a little bit at a time. Like when I think about this, I, I want to just kind of ease into it. I'm not saying that's never a good thing. The practice of regular simplicity is a good thing. But I'm telling you, nothing serves as a catalyst for that better than just writing a check that scares you to death. Or committing to a time, like to volunteer, to give of your time without giving second guesses. Again, I quote Dallas Willard. He says, The cautious faith that never saws off the limb on which it is sitting never learns that unattached limbs may find strange, unaccountable ways of not falling. I love that quote. In other words, if you never give what you can't afford to lose, then you never learn that God provides in mysterious ways. It's cutting off the limb on which you sit to see, okay, God. It's being willing to loan out your only car, offering a a room when you don't have a spare one giving your grocery money to buy groceries for someone else.
I would encourage you that if you feel like God is leading you to do that, just do it. Again, don't second guess yourself. God will bless you. Now how? I want to end with this. The Bible talks unashamedly about rewards. And that idea has been perverted in so many different ways that it makes us so uncomfortable to talk about it. But here's the reality. Jesus promises rewards so frequently that he intends for that to be a motivating factor for us. So those rewards are incredible. They're things like intimacy with God when he cares for your needs. Remember when Jeff two weeks ago talked about needing that money, that gift? It was a great message. I would encourage you to, to, to go back and listen to it. But he said he didn't even let people know. He was talking about secrecy. He didn't even tell people what he needed. And then someone gave a check for exactly what he needed. How do you, how do you experience that? How, you can't replace that with anything else other than to see my father cares. We have so many examples of this in our lives where God has come through and he has blessed us in ways and and given us just the glimpse. And it wasn't the gift that blessed us so much. It was just the reminder that, God, you see us. You know we're here. You love me. That's why sending a text to someone that God brings to mind at the moment where they're asking, God, do you even see me? Do you even care? And then they get a text from somebody that says, hey, God just put you on my heart just want you to know I, I'm praying for you. You can't get that in a textbook. That's an incredible reward. It gives us intimacy. It gives us freedom from the love of money and the cares of this world. As we give, as he commands us to give, he doesn't command us to give because he needs our money. He commands us to give because we need to give it. And through that, he releases us from the love of money and all the cares and the things that entangle us that pull us away from the things that he's actually called us to do. He allows us then to participate with Jesus in the kingdom through generosity. We get to see God do incredible things. Many of you have been a part of some amazing things because you have radically given of your time and of your money. And you have been more blessed than the people that you have served. Think about Think back to the things we talked about at the beginning, what people are chasing and what we're searching for, the brokenness of our culture, people who are overrun and maxed out, stressed in their pursuit of meaning, in their pursuit of identity, in their pursuit of purpose. They are surrounded by people yet alone, free to create whatever identity they have, but it is more uncertain than ever. Swimming in riches and yet poor, Wanting to experience the best of life. Wanting to have abundant life and finding it empty. What would people give to find joy that would last? What would people give to experience intimacy with their creator and to know that they are not alone? That they are chosen and loved and redeemed? What would they give to receive a treasure that doesn't fade or an experience that doesn't disappoint. Everything. They would give everything. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his, jo- in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That is the reward. It is why Jim Elliott, a missionary, famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Sacrifice is a mindset of giving up what you can't gain or what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. So what would it look like? We were created to live a life not of hurry, but of peace. But it is broken not because of our circumstances and the world that we live in, but because of our hearts and our desires. And we need Jesus to redeem those desires. And we walk in renewal by abiding in Jesus. And simplicity and sacrifice are ways of practicing that. And we do so to be freed to love our neighbors to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, God, that you you love us and that you see us. God, would you free us from the rush and the hurry that the world tries to grip us with? God, would you loosen our attachment to things and not not through apathy, but through redirected and redeemed desires that we would desire the kingdom above all things, that we would prioritize the kingdom above all things, that we would seek the kingdom first. Help us to practice these things, but not practice them so that we just, as an end and of themselves, as if simplicity is the answer, but practice them as a way of abiding in you, Jesus. Keep us close to you. Let us experience you in this process so that we would be a people who have margins and space and freedom to radically love and serve our neighbor to your glory and our joy.